Good evening, everybody. Um, and um, although I can't see you terribly well at the moment, it looks like there are really quite a lot of you, which is lovely. I have with me two, not one, but two professors, which is very um, uh, impressive. Uh, on my far left, Professor Edith Hall, um, who is Professor of Classics at uh, King's College London, and well-known, I'm sure, to many of you. And on my near left, Professor Femi Oyobodi, who is Professor of Psychiatry at Birmingham University and a consultant psychiatrist, it says, and the Birmingham and Solihull Mental Health Foundation, yes. Um, now, what we're here to talk about is madness, and specifically, uh, I suppose, very simply put, whether Medea is or is not mad. Um, this may seem, to some of you, uh, like a question to which there is an obvious answer, but I think that uh, we will discover, I hope, as this uh, discussion goes forward, that that's not the case at all. Um, it's a complicated matter, madness. Um, but I think the one thing I'm fairly sure about is that the way that a Greek audience would have looked at Medea and have thought about madness would probably, Edith, have been in some significant ways different from how an audience of today would look at her? In, in several ways. Um, I think the most important is that there wasn't actually an ancient Greek word that meant that we can translate simply as, as mad. There's at least six different words for different kinds of states of mind that in English tend to get translated as mad. Um, but the most common word is um, actually it's impossible. It's, it's not a state that can go on forever. It's simply um, a process you might go through temporarily. You go through a process of being crazy, and you can as easily come out of it. So the idea of a clinical diagnosis that someone is sort of, you know, a lifelong crazy, simply didn't exist. It, it was much more fluid and came in and out, and it was visitations by the gods. That's one thing. The second thing is it's highly gendered for the for the ancient Greeks. Um, different kinds of divinity strike men and women with insanity for m shorter or longer periods of time. In some ways, it's far more subtle than um, some contemporary forms of diagnosis. For example, there's a, a, a goddess called Lyssa who strikes men mad, but she's like um, very much the battlefield um, berserker crazy. It's what happens when men go into destructive fits of violence, and the only m guy who kills both his children, in fact, three of his children on stage in Euripides, Heracles, it's Lyssa. And it's crucial that um, women are susceptible to other kinds of goddess madness, like Phaedra in Euripides, mm. Hippolytus. Hers is much more bacchic, it's, it's, it's like the Bacchae. So they have a very, very subtle and complex range. Medea, however, is not sent mad by any divinity, and in my view is not even considered by the ancient Greeks to be mad, even temporarily, in my view. What she is, is a woman who, which means she has a weak psyche, highly vulnerable to strong emotions and impulses, um, disturbed physiologically. So you're saying that would be a given about her because she is a woman? Because she's female, yeah. yes. Okay. That she um, is, is simply, especially if she's uh, not got a man to supervise her, I mean, she's in exactly that position, that she's, <laughs> if you like, a single mother. Uh, single mothers were believed to be particularly sort of unstable or, or, or women who had never had sex. The word hysteria famously means womb-itis. 
because a woman who wasn't having regular sexual intercourse with her husband and pregnant all the time, her womb, which was considered just to be um, a, a slack loosening bit in, in a tube that ran all the way from her vagina to her mouth, wandered up and down her body if it wasn't held in place by <laughs> regular patriarchal. <laughs> it's true. So every woman in Greek tragedy, not just Medea, I will finish in a minute, but every woman in Greek tragedy who plays up, yeah, all of them, whether virgins like Antigone or women like Medea and Phaedra um, are not actually being, if you like, bonked at the time. And I used to call this Hall's Law that only unbonked women go bonkers in Greek tragedy. I've, try I've tried to rephrase this, <laughs> but it is actually incredibly true. Whereas Penelope can manage on the, uh, her own in the Odyssey and not go like that, in tragedy, all the women who are left on their own one way or another, it's a lesson to the men that unsupervised women are simply psychically vulnerable. And you find in the philosophers, especially Aristotle, actual statements to that effect, that their ability to deliberate on their own without male supervision, act as moral agents, is thoroughly compromised by their sex. Mm. Okay, but... So there's an issue about gender, there's an issue about actually whether or not there is even a notion of madness as such, in, in, in a way in that we way. would understand mm. it. But also what you're saying is that there is something here about, and if I've understood you, about madness being, if we, if, if, if we use that term loosely, being defined by your action rather than by your, than your, by your state of mind. I, mean, I, 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 I asked that only because I wanted to get Femi to comment yep. on that in relation to what we now think madness is, which might not necessarily be defined by... I mean, you, you don't make a retrospective diagnosis always, do you, in relation to what somebody has done? Yeah, I, th I think that, um, uh, that we, wouldn't be, we wouldn't have a discussion to, 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 to make if, if, the, if, the, um, if Medea had uh, if we knew, for example, that her husband, Jason, wasn't um, about to get married, but she thought he was, mm. or if we knew, for example, that she thought that people wanted, you know, that there were these agents who wanted to kill her children, and therefore she had to protect herself in some fashion, and then set out to poison the people she thought wanted to kill her children. Or if we knew that she heard voices, and if the text says she heard voices that told her that she was at risk, in other words, that um, it will be absolutely clear that her, her beliefs were wrong. And in today's world, we would describe that as uh, that she was deluded, or we might say that because she's hearing voices, that she's got hallucinations. And it all, all, although that's true, it's still, it's still possible that the, if, we're, if we're to look at her actions from within her own internal world, the actions will be rational, logical, and her conclusions would make sense to us. But of course, from outside of that world that she, she might have, it wouldn't make sense to us. So, so we know that that's not what happens in, the, in this case, in, in Medea's case. So it's not a flagrant case of psychosis or madness as you would normally regard it in, in psychiatry. I think, though, it's important to, to make the point that, um, I mean, theater isn't life, even though theater reflects life. Uh, and what I want to say is that because of the way theatre works, it, the, it, has to, it has to create characters that the people watching can understand. 
Therefore, there's got to be motivation that the audience understands. So the motivation of jealousy or en envy or anger or whatever has to make sense. And, and it's out of that motivation that the logic of the play mm. becomes obvious to, 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 the, to, the, to the audience. And I think, um, now the fact that the, that the logic of the play makes sense doesn't mean that we might think that the action is in mad, in quotation marks. And what I mean by that is, you can have things that make sense. So if you look at media, you see what you have got is, we've got uh, an immigrant woman who is Asian in the Greek world. Um, if you wish, you might call her uh, barbarian in the sense that she's not Greek, therefore her passions are much more unruly than that of a Greek person. We've got her, she's burnt her bridges, so she's, uh, she's exiled from her own, uh, her own part of the world. She can't go back there. She's already destroyed her social relationships with all these other people. And then she's uh, afraid of being abandoned, and therefore she's angry because her husband that she's done all these things for is about to get married to somebody else. So we can see how, given all of that, that she might feel anger. But of course, we still think that the anger she feels and that she expresses is excessive. And that excess of passion, we might, in some circumstances, regard that as a kind of, I, you know, I use words which are not, they're ordinary words, they're not psychiatric terms, you know, but you might think of it as a furore, you know, you can think of it as excessive passion, inability to control one's anger, inability to dampen one's hostility, that you therefore act on it with tremendous consequences. So, so it's not mad in the ordinary Sense because it's not disordered. Uh, well, yeah, 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 I mean, it, of course, it is disordered. It is disordered, but, but it's not. There isn't a, a, a disordered pattern. I, I say that because because one of the things that we don't very often remember about Medea is that she's already killed somebody. By the time the play starts, she's already murdered. She's got form. Uh, she has form mm. exactly, and and I wondered about from either one of you, how that, because of course that's one of the things that Jason is able to say to her, uh, with some justification, <laughs> you're a bad lot, mm. um, even though he, he is implicated in that early act. But w how does that first act of homicide fit with her later behavior? Well, I, can, can yeah, I answer? Yes. I'm, I'm very glad you've, you've used the word homicide, because in a way, I find it more useful to look at the play legalistically than psychiatrically. Okay, now you can't, you can't divorce those two, but it is the first and greatest, to my mind, murder play in the world repertoire, in that we go straight into the mind of a murderer at the beginning and watch her go from not knowing how to react to her situation, she doesn't at the beginning, to making up her mind to kill the people she loves the most in the world in the process of an hour. That is exactly what happened. Uh, Clytemnestra is the other possibility in the Agamemnon, but she has already made up her mind. Medea actually goes through the process of making up her mind and we watch her do it. So she's Hamlet before Hamlet. She's incredible. It's an unbelievably important play for that reason alone. And I actually think of it more in terms sometimes of the law of provocation, which can be a mitigating, um, provocation can help to get your sentence down in, in, in murder to manslaughter and from first degree to second degree homicide in the United States. And it's defined differently in different legal systems. But it's, it's very much designed around a man killing another man in a pub when he's been called a pansy 
or something. That is how the law is framed. And in fact, until the 1950s in this country, a man could get off basically for murder if he could prove that another man had raped his son, not his daughter, that's why I'm using that unpleasant word, um, that it had been provoked beyond control. Um, and I think, my dear, it actually deconstructs, I don't often use that word, I hate French theory, but she does actually dissolve or take to pieces the distinction between premeditated and meditated murder. She has an hour for it, right? How long can provocation be? I mean, in, in law courts, that's actually been discussed in America as to whether you have to have done the reciprocal violence within one minute, five minutes, three days, or in the case of abused wives, 20 years of it. This is actually discussed. So we recognise in law that somebody can act, as the Greeks saw, briefly in a flurry of, uh, you use the word furore, that there can be a brief outburst of extraordinary violence from someone who will never be violent again. Now, she has got form, she's done it before, and we all desperately want to know about that. But what happens to Medea in this play is one hour of extreme provocation, you could argue, yeah, followed by the murder. And when she says these famous lines in Greek, just before she does it, which in Greek, literally, it's not quite how it comes out in Ben Power, but Greek, literally, it says, I know absolutely, I'm completely clear that what I'm going to do is wrong, but my ability to deliberate has been conquered by my emotions, or my fury. She actually says that. So we know what that means. We know what it's like to feel you're in two halves, and you know what's the right thing to do, but you can't do it. We have all had the chocolate eclair that we know is beyond <laughs> our calorific intake to, to take a sip. We have all been in that internal dialogue, right? So I would actually like to put Madeira on trial with a very, very good barrister to get her off to manslaughter on provocation. <laughs> okay, well, that will be the next platform in this series, but possibly not quite time for that today. Um, so, Femi, in, in today's world, this, I mean, there, there is a sort of common way of talking about people doing terrible things, um, which, a sort of tabloid way of thinking about it, which says, broadly speaking, if you, if, if you do something really awful, you're either mad or you're bad. You're either mad or evil. The word evil has tremendous resonance in our... Uh, culture, doesn't it? The mm. notion that somebody might actually um, not be provoked in the sense that you're talking mm. about, Edith, but actually have some something so wrong with the way they look at the world that they are able to do terrible things without somehow understanding mm. the rightness or wrongness of it. Yes. So yeah, uh, yes, I mean, uh, that, the, that distinction, the dichotomy between whether someone's mad or bad, it's, um, it makes, you know, it, it's designed to make thinking easy. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and obviously, we're in a much more complicated world. I think if we set it out as a psychiatrist might, you would say that um, she's killed her own brother, so that's a past history of, of homicide. She's uh, betrayed her family, therefore she's untrustworthy at some level. Um, so, so we've got those two things in there. We also have, um, in the beginning of the play, we get a sense that she is distraught. So that she's not eating, she's not sleeping, 
Um, she talks about uh, feeling suicidal because of the way in which her husband has behaved. So we know that emotionally she's in turmoil. And some people might say, I don't necessarily agree with this, but some people might say that she is depressed. Um, and the reason for raising that is that, of course, there's a lot of discussion uh, uh, in the psychological in the literature about whether or not the hostility uh, is in, in, in directed inwards or whether it's directed outwards. You know, so you've got the kind of rule of thumb that, um, that the hostility in women is, generally speaking, directed inwards and that in men is externalized so that they're much more likely to stab the person in the pub and, and so on. But of course, you might also argue that the, the, the direction of the, um, of the thrust could just be determined by the circumstances. So that um, you have, you, you know, you've got her husband coming in at two, at two points in the play where he says all the wrong things. Mm -hmm. and, all, and all the things that he says, instead of it making her feel much more like harming herself, they make her much more resolute in harming him. And, and I, I personally, I, I think that it's, it's always hard when you've got a woman. So you've got a woman who is a mother who kills her children. And, and we, because we don't expect a woman who is a mother to kill her children, we've got two you know, kind of ways of thinking of it. We either think she's ruthless, cold, calculating, and that it's all not a nice person, she's a bad person, she's evil. Or we take the other view that, given that women very rarely do this, then a woman who does this has to be ill. So we swing one from the other. But, um, but I, I think that, that she's a, a woman where her ability to act with anger and to, and to, and to do uh, violent acts is already present because she's done it before. Yeah. Therefore, it means that it's probably easier for her to do it. I also agree with Edith that there is a provocation, that the set of circumstances that she's in are such that she has to act in a way. Um, and uh, the other bit of it we haven't talked about is the degree to which shame is important here. Shame. Shame. Mm -hmm. so, so there's this business of, I cannot stand the idea that people will laugh at me. Therefore, I'm going to do something which is so horrendous they're going to have to respect me, if you sort of so. And that business of of, uh, of shame, um, exemplified in the, you know amok. You know amok is a condition which is usually described in in Southeast Asia. Of course, it happens everywhere. It's just that when it happens in the West, we don't see it in that same kind of framework. So amok is the idea that you're that you're humiliated, and it's usually something very 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 you know kind of trivial. Uh, you know, somebody walks past you without saying good morning or something like that, and then you feel humiliated, and before you know it, you've killed 10 people. Mm. And then when you come out of it, you see all these dead bodies around you, and you can't remember that you did it. Uh, but the point I'm making with it is that it's related to this business of esteem, mm. of self-esteem. And, and the business of shame and self-esteem is important in media. It's, it's mm. there all the time. Um, and that may also have complicated the, the, the set of, you know, the high emotional state and pushed her in the direction of the, of the actions that she takes. And, you, and you've already made the point that she's extremely isolated by mm. this stage, isn't she? That she has no family because she's done away with them all, and, or left them or in some other way. Um, 
separated herself from Yes, them. I mean, I think it's very difficult for, for us in contemporary times to, to fully appreciate what exile means. Because mm -hmm. we're, 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 to think of exile in the way in which um, uh, Medea is experiencing it, you have to think of uh, people like Solzhenitsyn in the Soviet period, where they, uh, because they were conscientious individuals, they were essentially exiled by the Soviet authorities, so they couldn't go back to live in Russia. And, and so imagine that these people, they have an uh, incredible feeling for where they've come from, but they can't return to where they've come from. So there's a proper sense of deep isolation. And this, in this particular play, it's compounded by the idea that she's likely to be abandoned. There's this business of being abandoned, so it just complicates the whole picture. Um, so I suppose that you, when you're in that sort of state, it gives, you, gives us a sense of the degree of inner, inner turmoil. And the final thing to say about all this is, is there's this business of, of, this, of, of uh, the balance between our emotions and the balance between our forebrains, you know, our, our rationality and mm -hmm. our logic and mm -hmm. so on. And, and we, we almost always think uh, as if somehow the, the forebrain, that our rationality and logic somehow always holds sway. But all you have to do is think of people when they're in love, and you think of how they might fall in love with somebody who everybody else sees to be totally unsuitable. But nonetheless, the fact that they're in love, their emotions and their passions clouds the capacity mm -hmm. to think. And, and I, I, my own view is that when you think of it like that, then you start to see that, the, the, uh, technically speaking, the, the person, the action has arisen in an unsound mind because of the power of the emotions to overrule the ability to think in a logical, rational sort of way that we all hope and aim to, to do on a day-to-day -day basis. And so would I be right in thinking that you, you would, you would recognise that it's, it's possible for anybody, no matter how uh, well constructed emotionally most of the time, to be knocked off their, off their perch, as it were, and lose that capacity to apply rational thinking in the grip of certain kinds of powerful emotion. It wouldn't necessarily yeah, result in them yeah, killing yeah, somebody, yeah. but it might cloud their judgment. I think and it could yes. happen to anybody. Yeah, I think that we are very unwilling to acknowledge that those of us in the theatre today, that we can do things which we somehow think people ought not to do. Therefore, when these actions occur, and they are terrible, horrendous events. We want to classify them to as if we couldn't do them yeah. because we yeah. feel more comfortable with the idea that we couldn't do them. I, I think it's harder. <laughs> but I find, yeah, that I mean, I, I think you're so right. I'm simply agreeing, and, and I'm going to be very tiny bit anecdotal from my own experience because people just aren't allowed to be honest. Um, I, I when I had my, my two children, I had a huge number of violent impulses towards them, as anybody does to a screaming, you know, alarm clock that just emits poo and won't let you go to sleep. <laughs> I mean, it's completely kind of... Anyway, so I'd had eight years therapy by this time I had, had these babies. So when I was given an are you depressed form after I had my children, it said questions like, how often a day do you think about harming your child? I put three. <laughs> I had this fantasy and that they looked you up. That I chucked them out the window. <laughs> yeah. Every time I cried. And, and, and so I put three. How often do you think about harming yourself? You know, at least once. <laughs> how unstable do you feel? Very. You know, how do you feel if your husband goes out and leaves you both on their own? Absolutely psychotic. You know, whatever. <laughs> I gave it to this woman. And before I knew it, it was social services had come <laughs> round. And I said, seriously. 
And I thought, I'm being the responsible one because I'm, I thought the whole point of therapy, you know, I've named all these things, so I don't do it. Yep. Instead of which, it was <laughs> like, ooh, uh, you know, um, and, and I, was, I was put on some sort of special <laughs> to watch list. When I made it quite clear, the one thing I couldn't stand being was on my own mm. without adult. And mm. I said that. And guess what? When I did some research, I mean, you are absolutely you know, far more than I do. I have done some research on forensic psychology and criminal, uh, sort of criminal studies of filicidal mothers. And it's not infanticidal. That could be somebody else's. It's filicidal, their own progeny. Um, the isolation, and it's not just... Exile is very often a part of it uh, on a macro scale. But on the micro scale, you do not leave a woman who has shown violent propensities, right, before, alone with small children, ever. <laughs> it's not just by being divorced, I mean, ever. It's, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's incredibly nerve-wracking, and most ancient Greek men would have absolutely seen that. And not only that, um, but it's just very important to say that in ancient Greek law, a man was allowed to get off completely for murder, completely, if he found a guy in bed with his wife. Didn't you know that? He could say, and provided he could prove... I don't think you have to go as far back as the Greeks, actually, <laughs> to, find <laughs> to find that but that could happen. Yeah, but, but, no, but yes. you had to prove something, yeah. which I don't think the cultures you might be talking about... <laughs> you had to prove that it was unpremeditated. If you could prove that you had come back and without any sort of tra entrapment or anything like that, the passion that any normal guy, it's what you're saying, was expected to feel if he found a man actually in flagrante with his wife, just walk out the court. Obvious, it was so obvious to them that the stat strength of shame, cuckoldment, mm. insult, pain, whatever, was that strong. So you, if you just flip that round to Medea, <laughs> if you see what I mean, and I think our problem is a lack of honesty about the strength of emotions, which is why Greek tragedy is so still alive today. I mean, I, I, that when people mm. say to me, why is it? I say, actually, because it talks with an honesty about our really basic and primal mm. emotions in a way that was not possible for 2,000 years until Freud. Well, I, I need to let the audience ask you some questions, but can I just ask both of you one last question then about Medea, both then and now, which is about how it sits in a kind of moral framework. So what does an audience... what moral lessons, if any, are there for a mo uh, an audience today looking at Medea? And I think you've, in a way, outlined what <laughs> some of them might be. But what moral lessons was it teaching the audiences when it was first performed? About, for example, was it, was it a warning? Was it a play about, yeah. you know, never leave a woman alone with yeah. her children? It's what I call a negative paradigm. It's, this is what happens if you, uh, and compound it, you know, don't just marry an unstable woman, you marry an unstable woman <laughs> with, with, who's committed murder, is a barbarian, and then you leave her alone, and then you insult her sexually and racially. <laughs> what do you expect? Um, and you get chucked out of the city. I mean, mm. it, it's like, what do you expect exactly? Any one of those things would be sufficient sort of provocation. In fact, just 20 years before, there had been a law passed, though, that you couldn't pass on citizen rights if you're an Athenian mm. to uh, um, someone who'd married out of Athens. So uh, it was uh, a, a sort of lesson in not uh, uh, in against exogamy, as, 
as you would call it, in that social context. But, of course, then Euripides just turns the final screw at the end because she's the only uh, kin killer in Greek tragedy who gets off unpunished. Mm. You could say she is punished because she loses her children, but she is not taken to court. She's not reciprocally murdered. Even Orestes in the Oresteia uh, it, it does have to go to court and does have to do propitiatory sacrifices and, uh, and so on. You know, she does not get that because it turns out that she's semi-divine uh, or something. And for those yeah. of you who haven't seen it yet, I'm not going to do a spoiler. No. So can I but just say yes, quickly, please, that yes. just to say that, um, I mean, you can look at it in all sorts of ways, but there is a, if you think of the, the kind of moral kind of heart of it, you could, you could argue that uh, fidelity is being explored. Yeah. Um, and the business of fidelity, you, you, the, 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 the great yeah. tragedians, the great playwrights always examine fidelity and they do it sometimes surreptitiously and sometimes explicitly. And I, I don't want to necessarily talk about Othello, but you, you <laughs> could say that in Othello that you're looking at sexual, uh, sexual jealousy, but actually you're looking at the business of fidelity of language, fidelity of science, what they mean, and so on. And in this play, you've got fidelity in all sorts of ramifications. So you've got, you've got a woman who has betrayed her people. So you've got issues of fidelity there. You've got a Greek uh, hero, Jason, who has made a vow to a woman who breaks that vow. Mm. So mm. you explore all the mm. time. You're exploring the nature of fidelity, and and he doesn't. The uh, you know Euripides doesn't come out on one side or the other. What it does is it, exp it, it he explores it and opens it out to you to help you to see what the dangers and the risks are, and and obviously all the time showing you that it does harm. Mm. Ain't that the truth, ladies and gentlemen? I'm afraid we have to stop, even though there is much, much more that you could ask and much more that our very distinguished guests could say. Um, but I'm afraid that the tragedy of Medea is going to be played out again on this stage very shortly, and those of you that are coming tonight wouldn't want us to be here instead of them. So um, thank you very much, Edith and Femi, and thank you to all of you. Thank you.